a most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I am joined with my friend Zach, who's back with us for the first time in quite a while, it seems like. Uh, been a about couple a of weeks. I was, I was at the beginning of October, yeah. Wait, so. Okay. And then we, of course, have Terry Phillips with us. Hello. And Terry, you're working on your next episode, I believe. I don't know yep. where you are in that process. How close I, we have all the audio files from the actors. I'm halfway through reco uh, recording or editing, I should say. Yeah. And uh, if things go at this pace, I should be done in a week or so. And this will probably come in at about um, about 40 minutes. Wow. About. So it'll be your longest standalone episode because it's not a two-part. This will be the longest single episode. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Good for you. Can't wait. Always excited <laughs> to hear your shows because they're always so good. Um, oh, and that is for folks looking for your shows. They're at what are they at, Terry? It's Imagine Air Theater. Uh, the website is imagine-air-theater.com, or you can just search for it. I think it usually comes right up. Yeah, it trips, it's right. also no, uh, it trips up. They're also it used to not. It used to be harder to find, but now <laughs> Terry's gotten so immensely popular with his podcast, you can find it. <laughs> the episodes are also posted on YouTube, uh, and um, and uh, oh, and of course on podcast uh, accumulators. And really, all you have to type is "imagine" because John Lennon's song will come up, and Terry's podcast will come up. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about suing his estate for copyrighting. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> and we have Kathy Fuller Hey Kathy, I haven't got an update in a while. Are we looking at getting uh, another book out soon or are we um, where are we at? Bless you, I'm ramping up for volume three of the Lost Scripts, the Lost Broadcast series. And that would be the gigantic kerfuffle when uh, Canada Dry and the ad agency switch him to CBS and add uh, a, a writer and demand a change in the narrative of the show. So uh, wow. it starts with a bang. Uh, awesome. I'll just say that. So. I cannot wait. That is awesome. And then uh, are they letting you back into uh, getting more of the, the, the shows, getting you back in, in California, back into I'm, the library? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to find a willing dupe that uh, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to go to get permission that I can give permission to to help me get those missing scripts. So, because uh, oh. you got to remember, you've got your I'm the eternal living. Uh, the dupe right here is right is, is is center stage on this podcast. So there you go. But you want two, no if you want two dupes to double duty, I'll join in. I'll, I'll yeah. tag along there with Buck. Just we'll gotta be in, there you go. We'll Just on. gotta be in in um, Los Angeles. So uh. oh, you got yeah. oh, you got to be a resident. Oh. Well, no, no, just got to be close enough. Oh. And there's no parking at UCLA. So you just got to find a way to get to Westwood. So. Oh, Zach and I'll go. Right, Zach? Road trip. Yeah, I've got relatives. I got relatives cool. in LA, Buck. You could stay on one couch and I'll stay on another. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Dupe along Cassidy and his buddy. There we go. All right. So. <laughs> Hiya, Buck. 
right, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Orson Welles without Orson Welles. So this this is one of his episodes that uh, on our original run, now just so you know, because you're going to be listening to this maybe decades later, who knows, but on our original run, we we did all the episodes, but at the beginning, I was doing them by myself, and then Kathy and I did some, I think this is right around that time frame, and I decided when I hit this one, I was like, oh, it's no Orson. We'll skip that one and go to the next one. But then as we hit all the other substitutions where someone was taking over for Orson, we would do them. So we've, we've done all of these. There's, I don't know, probably four or five of them that don't have Orson that we've done. Uh, but this one, I don't think we ever did, or at least I didn't have a record of us doing it. So um, this is kind of early in the Orson run of, of shows within the first month and a half or two months or something and uh, kind of a fun one to revisit so uh and and man we talked about orson covering a lot of ground uh this a lot of ground was covered here too so i'm sure there's lots for us to talk about so let's go to my friend terry first to give us any insights he had well this was um as were the others on the abc radio networks and uh it was originally broadcast on October the 28th, 1945. If it had been Orson Welles, there's a chance that he would have talked about uh, Halloween, even though he yeah. might not have wanted to talk about War of the Worlds. Yeah. Uh, but he <laughs> might well have, have made some, some topical reference. Instead, there was this... It could um, be why he checked out and decided, I don't want to talk about be. that, so I'm just going to be... be. So <laughs> busy no, no, this holiday is off limits for me now. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's busy, busy making a costume for, for trick-or-treating. Yeah. Um, he, uh, so he wasn't there, and instead there was this guy named William Hall. And try as I might, maybe one of you found it, but I could not find word one about William Hall. Um so I don't, I can't give you much about him, but what I can talk about is his style of commentary. And I use the term commentary because even though it sounded kind of like a news report, it violated a lot of the basic principles that reporters adhere to. He, he was almost totally nonspecific about any of the facts that he presented. Uh, he would he would attribute them to sources say, or it was in such and such a newspaper. But if it was in a newspaper, was it an editorial in the paper? Was it a, a news report in the paper? We don't know. In many cases, we didn't. He didn't identify even the name of the newspaper. Um, he bounced around with titles of different leaders he referred to, particularly Stalin, who at one point he called Generalissimo, and. Uh, I can't remember whether it was Premier or somebody else, right. uh, something else. But he, it, it was one of these kinds of uh, presentations that always um, uh, irks me when I hear someone being someone who's supposed to be a, a journalist. I mean, pre right. presumably a journalist, right. not being very careful about uh, attribution and and detailed facts. Mm -hmm. Having said all that, the topics he covered were fascinating, right? Uh, and Great. and so it was it was certainly uh, a, an interesting uh, presentation, and and so maybe in that sense he was a little bit more like uh, uh, Paul Harvey, who yes. uh, subsequently also on ABC did these kinds of 
um, what he called news and commentary. Right. And so maybe maybe it was in that spirit. Maybe that's what the powers that be at ABC liked. I'm not really yeah. sure. Well, it could also be that they're going, well, you're taking over for Orson Welles' commentaries. It's always very opinionated, so we can be a little looser on things. Yeah. And yet, and yet, his commentaries were not nearly as pointed as Orson Welles. Oh right. no, no, they no. were just kind of well, here's this information and that information. It, it was it, it's it sounds like a news anchor auditioning for a job rather yeah. than just running with the flow and trying to stick to a yeah. format. Yeah, that's that's actually a good perspective, Zach. I, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, this felt like an audition, and I I was I wanted to. Because, like, the biggest thing that I have to say on this is something that you pointed to, which is, like, you couldn't find anything about him. Neither could I. And, quite frankly, uh, the fact that we – it feels like there's a – for all that we have in terms of, like, news uh, coverage on radio from this period, there's still, like, a ton that's missing. Yeah. And, like, it's the one thing on an old-time radio sphere that I wish I could find more of. Um, like or specific commentators or anything like that. Like you can you can hear the build up to war and that's fascinating, but you want to hear some other in-betweens. And uh so just to kind of hear some person that just literally seems to have dipped in and out of life, uh uh giving his thoughts on the day in such a negligent fashion was uh, a bit boggling. But I, I well, allowed I think it because failed like, the audition, unfortunately, is what. Oh, oh yeah, but as you say, these like. are com but these are commentaries, as you said, Buck. Like we can, they probably gave him a flexible rubber band to play with, yeah. but it just it comes it comes it comes off weird because the person you're replacing has a very distinct style, and yeah. this person's kind of like it's 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 like an npc in a video game <laughs> like it's very well, nondescript it sort of running of, into a wall certainly we have news shows now and you have like opinion shows and and that'll you know rachel maddow's and, and things on fox they're they're right. folks that, that are, are are less news and more just their opinions on things and then you've always got some some folks on both those networks that like to present themselves as more news but mm -hmm. still opinions and yeah, so that, and that's sort of where this lives. I think it's in that sort of area where he's trying to come across as a news guy, but has some definite opinions on things and let those opinions ride as he's going through it, which is not the best. It creates kind of a tainted view of of things and and doesn't really yeah. Anyway, but but it, it, it it's like if, it's, it's like if somebody asks you like, okay, we're gonna you're gonna replace for a week a guy who does Shakespearean readings. With, with the classiest form of acting you can imagine. So just do what you want to do. And it goes, Romeo, Romeo, where <laughs> for art thou Romeo, Rome, yeah, Romeo, yeah. It's it's like, it's Very it's good. literally like asking a robot to do a human's job, yeah, yeah. like from, from a mental standpoint and an emotional standpoint, it's strange. <laughs> okay, well, let's go over to Kathy. Kathy, what, uh, well, what did you take away from any of this? Well, this kind of, Un unorganized litany of anxiety really made me want to p go to bed and, and pull the covers over my head. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it made me it, it made me appreciate what Orson did with this form and this time, but also some of the other pinch hitters who who you know really put. The, but the one of the thing, the two things that worried me most were the disbanding of the Air Force Weather Service. It's like, does that mean nobody was chasing tornadoes? You know, how are we going to 
track fallout from other other dropping atomic bombs. So I was just curious. Now I need to go and do some homework about what happened after the Air Force Weather Service. Did it become the U.S. Weather Service? What the heck happened to it? And the other thing was that the um, uh, the auto workers, uh, 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 when the uh, automobile manufacturers demanded a 45-hour work week, and I thought, um, I have always talked about uh, sort of World War II in my classes as um, a sort of a backdoor triumph for workers because um, wages ended up being high during the war and jobs were plentiful. And so as part of the way this whole series fascinates me by diving deep into this very unsettled period that I usually in a 15 week course where I get to give half an hour to this whole period. I, and I'm usually talking about, you know, big, big issues and relief and atomic bomb fears to know that there was so much else going on. Mm -hmm. Again, I want to go back to bed with the covers over my head. What, Kathy, um, I'm glad you mentioned that, the auto workers because did you notice that he mispronounced Walter Ruther's last name? <laughs> <laughs> what was that about? Yeah, so it goes back to Zach's uh, Romeo and Juliet performance. New York, Schenectady, New York. And I will uh, uh, just also just because to mention that the uh, Lear top combination that might have television in it uh, uh, is with their $500 top of the line set would sell for 8200 today. Gotta throw in some specific. Whoa! Wow. Darn expensive crazy? radio. So. Oh yeah, but nice. <laughs> it still impresses me that I still hear those ads. I'm like, wow, that sounds like a really good radio. <laughs> I would have <laughs> liked that one back when I was when I was a kid, being able to tape anything off the radio. That'd be awesome. Anyway, um, the other thing I think is mentioned in here. Um, I know I heard it somewhere. <laughs> I think it was this one, but uh, but was where they mentioned that that uh, the nuclear uh, information on making a nuclear weapon maybe it should be shared with everybody in the world, right? right. Like have it be open source, is I guess what we would call it now. Um, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that seems like such a humongously bad idea. <laughs> just kind of <laughs> we'll just make it available for anybody and everybody. It's like I don't know. But but Daryl, I have to tell you that was actually a not unique point of view. There were many right. who thought that that uh the the atomic secret should be shared. Uh and he did say it should be controlled by some international body. But of course, you know, if it were just open sourced as you suggested, that that could be uh, a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, Terry. Don't you want a science project at a science fair to just be one little mini nuclear explosion? Well, I think everybody should carry a nuclear bomb and wear it on his head. There, there you go. <laughs> there, there's a, ter a terrific book about this very moment called By the Bomb's Early Light by Paul Boyer, one of my favorite historians. And... In 1940, late 45, early 46, it was a huge issue. The physicists, the scientists said, let's make a United Nations of science because the rest of the world are going, the U.S. is the only country that has the bomb. They're now going to be the world dominators. And there are plenty of reasons for the rest of the world to go, oh, why have one country be all powerful? Right. And so there were these 
um, a, a ways in the same way that um, uh, Mr. Hall is talking about, oh, we need an international forum to discuss all these political and war issues. And the first meeting is to be in London. Mm. So again, back to the moment when this is happening, a war everywhere, these tremendously uh, sort of scary bombs, and who is going to control this great big world? Can we possibly find peace? Well, and then you've got um, people that, that, since we have the bomb, let's go ahead and use it and make it exactly. the, yeah, it the United States yeah. of America, yeah. the United Countries of America, and we'll we'll rule the entire world and it'll be a better place, right? So, so I mean, you, had, you definitely had uh, yeah. two extreme views going on and everything in between. So, crazy. Yeah. So, there's a but bef, i i guess as a wrap-up too if if people are wanting a less anxious version of these kind of topics uh you can find hear it now which is edward r murrow's radio version of what it would end up becoming see it now right um and they they literally start off that introduction with um like ready reports to, for you in the coming difficult days ahead. And the first time I heard that, I was like, Oh, what? <laughs> the first thing I'm going to do as a news program is scare the heck out of my audience. But it, there is an anxiety like looming about, they're not going to shy away from it, but that is, it's Edward R. Murrow's voice. It's a little bit calmer and a little bit yeah. more serene by comparison to this guy. Zach, are there a lot of those that exist or not too many or. I think it's, the the ones that I have access to are like twelve or something like that. I can okay. um. So no. I'll I'll put links in when you post this around. I'll put links in. And be like here, find it here. Yeah. Okay. But, Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Terry. Why don't we uh, close out with you if you have anything else you yeah. want to post? Yeah, you got uh, two minutes left. So, yeah. Uh... Oh well. Um. Just on that last topic, uh, he did kind of soften it by saying that it wasn't just for uh, war making purposes, but that atomic energy could be used by um by many people and that that has in fact come to pass that atomic yeah. energy is more widely available and then the last thing i'll say is that uh, the, the whole china topic which he spends a fair amount of time on uh, is just as interesting today as it uh what would have been in 1945 and it's one of the things i like about this whole commentary series is how it reflects on our time and it's um it's it makes all of them really worthwhile even the ones the few without orson welles that is 100 true and i'll agree with that and then i'm going to dovetail on something you just said which is you always at least me just me but probably some of my listeners too i would think learn something new from these that you weren't or, or your timeline in your head was different than the reality of the timeline just like uh, i would have guessed when did they start talking about nuclear power as creating energy and the positive use of nuclear? I would have thought that was 55 or something. I wouldn't have thought it was back in uh, 45 that they were even talking about that. I, I would just thought by 45, they were probably just talking about just nuclear bombs and that's all they would think they could do with it. So that's insightful that, that okay, even back this at this point in time, they're talking about using nuclear energy and stuff. So interesting so anyway i hope everybody enjoys this episode and we will be back with more and uh, i hope you've enjoyed all of our orson wells commentaries they were fun to bring you guys and we have so enjoyed them and, uh, and i so enjoyed being with these people and, and getting a chance to talk and they really do a good job their whole 
the whole reason they're with me is to educate me and they do. So there we go. <laughs> Maybe they educate you a little bit too. We'll see you folks next time and enjoy more power to Orson. Yeah. Here Ciao. is Williams Hall with the latest news. Mr. Hall is substituting this morning for Orson Welles, who is suffering from laryngitis. We'll get to the news in just a moment. It won't be long before you'll be seeing many new radio sets in the stores again. And among them will be one kind you'll find especially good. You may not have seen its name before, but actually this name has been on the very finest types of radios for more than 15 years. The name is Lear, L-E-A-R. And the radios it's been on since 1930 have been radios for aircraft. Aircraft radios have such an important job to do that the most advanced engineering, the finest materials, and the most expert craftsmanship are required in building them. This is the kind of manufacture that Lear knows. It's the kind that has become ingrained in Lear. This is why you hear people say, Lear is the name men fly by. Now, Lear is making home radios. And just as you would expect, these radios are as fine, as dependable, as high in quality as Lear knows how to make them. In Lear radios, you find the newest developments. To mention one, there's the Lear wire that remembers. This is a simple way to make lasting records of the good times you have, the songs of the children, the talents of your friends. Or you can record radio programs right from the air. These recordings can be just a few words, or they can be hours long. You can play them and replay them over and over indefinitely. Or if you don't want to keep them, you wipe them off the wire simply by recording something else. Radios have never had anything like this before. It's one of the reasons you'll want your radio to be a Lear radio. Now, Williams Hall, substituting for Mr. Wells, brings you the latest news. The opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. Civil war is said to be raging in northeast and central China. A Chinese communist spokesman has told foreign correspondents of civil warfare in 11 provinces. And Chongqing reports say central government troops and Chinese communist forces are engaged in daily skirmishes in Shanxi province. Marshal Yen Shi Shan, Chongqing appointed Shanxi governor, says daily clashes have been going on for the past 12 weeks and that the situation approaches a state of undeclared civil war. The 63-year-old marshal says government forces have suffered 2,000 casualties in September and October during the battle for Changxin in southeastern Shanxi. Marshal Yen claims that the communists had gathered a force of 64 regiments before they seized the strategic city. The aging marshal has returned to Chongqing for the first time in eight years to report to Generalissimo Chung Kai-shek in person. He says there are records of 40 to 50 engagements in a single day. Well, that is one side of the story, and now here's the other. The New China Daily, a communist newspaper, flatly accuses the Chung government with the employment of 800,000 troops against Red Armies in northern and eastern China. Reports from Admiral Barbie's flagship off Hulutau, Manchuria, says Chinese communist soldiers have taken shots at one of the Admiral's barges. The American barge was driven away from the barricaded Hulutau pier by a shower of rifle bullets from gray-uniformed communist troops. The commander of the Chinese Communist Fourth Army at Hulutau has formally apologized to Vice Admiral Barbie, and the incident has been smoothed out. But, observers point out, this too tells of the tense situation in China and indicates communist determination to hold their own against Chiang Kai-shek or even American intervention if it should come. 
While this has been happening in China, reports from Bombay tell of continued political unrest in India. The Indian Congress Party shows no inclination to rest until British control of India comes to an end. As a matter of fact, it has passed a resolution demanding that the British quit India. This declaration says, the Indian Congress Party's primary object and paramount duty is to benefit the masses by raising the economic, cultural, and spiritual levels and removing unemployment. The resolution also says that the Congress Party is in favor of a world federation of free nations and would back world peace and cooperation. But they argue, and we quote again, only on the basis of freedom and elimination of imperialism everywhere can world peace be established. Political unrest also prevails in Europe. A spokesman for Julius Maneu, the Romanian peasant party leader, told reporters in London that there is no constitutional government in Romania today. He charged that the present Groza government is not qualified to rule. Maniu's London spokesman added that the absence of normal relations between the king and the government has created what he calls an absurd situation. The Groza regime has denied such allegations. Supporters of the Groza government have claimed that Maniu represents reactionary interests, those sections of the Romanian people who allegedly wish to return to the old days, which supposedly served only the interest of the privileged class. At the same time, the Swiss radio reports that Prime Minister Groza has announced that democratic national elections will be held in the near future. Groza has pledged himself not to touch British and American capital should he be returned to office. While all these reports add up into an ever-growing need for an international forum to iron out these differences, we receive word that the United Nations Organization has made another step forward. The first General Assembly of the Global Peace Forum is expected to be held at London during the first week of January. The governments and leaders of the world are giving a lot of thought to President Truman's Navy Day declaration on United States foreign policy. American commentators in general praise the president's summary of American foreign policy. Most of them say the speech heralds full American cooperation in the preservation of future world peace. Diplomatic observers in Washington are agreed that it was an excellent statement of broad United States objectives. Some, however, were uncertain of the reception Mr. Truman's policy statement would get abroad, especially from nations with whom relations are strained. The London Sunday newspapers welcome the president's assertion that strong American forces will be maintained to avoid future wars. The Sunday Dispatch says the speech contains, and we quote, much that is hopeful, accompanied perhaps inevitably by material that will prompt renewed speculation. British political sources regard the Navy Day pronouncement as notice to the world that the United States intends to stand firm in her present position. Some London sources showed disappointment at the lack of specific detail. They point out that Mr. Truman gave no hint as to whether the big three have agreed on how to revive the foreign minister's council. The Russian newspapers prominently carry the president's address. A full resume is given and a text of 12 points of American foreign policy is printed. But so far, there has been no ad editorial comment. Soviet sources point out that Generalissimo Joseph Stalin within the past year, has asserted that the wartime coalition should be able to organize peace. It is predicted in Moscow that important developments will soon come from United States Ambassador Harriman's recent visit to Premier Stalin in his vacation retreat. 
The French Sunday newspapers agree with President Truman's foreign policy outline. Some are critical of his revelation that America intends to keep the secrets of the atomic bomb. They suggest that if the world's riches are to be at the disposal of all peoples, as the president suggested, then the secrets of atomic energy should be shared. A French leftist paper said, nobody can contest the generosity and idealism of Truman's 12 points, but let us wait until Truman translates his words into acts. The resistance newspaper Combat said, the speech seems above reproach when it gives a new and welcome publicity to the Atlantic Charter. It appears the president doesn't intend to reveal the atom bomb secret at present, so a certain awkwardness hovers over his words. A conservative Paris paper finds encouragement in United States reaff reaffirmation that she has neither territorial or aggressive intentions. But some French sources show disappointment that President Truman says nothing definite about American policy toward Germany or Indochina. Some Swedish observers compared Mr. Truman's 12 points to the late President Wilson's 14 points. They praise what they call the straightforwardness and uncompromising idealism the president showed. Other Swedish sources believe the Navy Day statement was meant to inform Russia directly of American foreign policy. And they also predict Premier Stalin may make a similar Soviet policy announcement in his November 7th speech. From Jerusalem, the Palestine Post comments that the president's words, along with declarations by England's Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan last Friday, indicate a common statement of Western principles. The paper says Truman's points not only warn Russia and check enthusiasm within the Soviet orbit, but reassure a large part of the world concerning the reality of the American attitude. Now for a glance at home front developments. In Washington, the Army announces that it will demobilize and convert to peacetime basis its worldwide weather service for the Air Forces. Originally costing $40 million at its peak, the Air Force's weather service contained 857 observation and forecasting stations. The 17,800 men who man these global units will be reduced and the foreign units turned over to the countries in which they are located. On Capitol Hill, Senator McMahon, the chairman of the Senate Atomic Energy Committee, says his group will meet for the first time next Tuesday. Dr. Morris Perlman, a prominent physicist, told fellow members of the Los Alamos atomic bomb project that in a future war, a nation might suffer decisive damage before learning the identity of its attackers. And as a safeguard, Perlman urged a strong international authority as the only way to control atomic weapons of war. The auto industry is waiting for labor's answer to a compromise proposal on union demands for a 30% wage lift. The vice president of the CIO United Auto Workers, Walter Reuther, is expected to reply today to General Motors' suggestion that workers settle for a 45-hour week with a 6% wage boost for straight-time work. This would be only for the duration of the reconversion period. Observers believe this suggestion, originating with GM President C.E. Wilson, probably will be turned down, mainly because labor fought long and hard for the present 40-hour week and wouldn't want to give it up. The General Motors president recognized this fact and said labor's first impression probably would be that it is a reactionary idea, not in the interest of labor. However, he added, it's no more reactionary than working longer hours in the war emergency. 
Wilson went on to say that the present overtime pay of 50% on extra hours over 40 discourages employers and business generally from planning such extra hours of production. Therefore, he pointed out, production would tend to be reduced at a time when American and world markets are clamoring for peacetime products to fill a long pent-up demand. In conclusion, the General Motors chief executive said that if a 40-hour week proved sound in pre-war days and a 48-hour week was good during the war, a 45-hour week would be just as sound for the reconversion period. And now your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. Lear has been making fine radios since 1930, aircraft radios. During all that time, Lear developed techniques of fine manufacture that are now benefiting the new Lear home radios. When you see and hear these Lear home radios, you'll say to yourself, what wonderful instruments. And you'll be absolutely right. For there'll be a whole line of sets, handsome and capable. Some will have television. Some will include high-fidelity, static-free FM. There will be models with record players and automatic record changers. And some will have the Lear wire recorder I mentioned a little while ago. But with all these features and with their unusual excellence of manufacture, Lear radios are not high in price. They range from a top of about $500 for a masterpiece console combination to about $19.95 for a smart, efficient table model. Of course, the best way to see what Lear has done for home radio is to hear the new sets themselves. We expect you'll be able to do that before the holiday buying season. We'll keep you posted. Because we know when you look at and listen to a Lear radio, you'll be convinced that here is a radio that gives you more value for every dollar you pay. The Lear radio. L-E-A-R. And now a final word from Williams Hall, substituting for Orson Welles. Here is a brief resume of this morning's news highlights. Civil warfare is reported raging in 11 provinces in northeast and central China. A communist newspaper charges that the Chongqing forces are using some 800,000 troops against the communists. Overseas reactions to President Truman's foreign policy speech are generally favorable. Russian newspapers are carrying the full text of Mr. Truman's speech without comment. Observers predict that Marshal Stalin will state the Soviet position in his speech on November 7th. The Auto Workers Union is expected to give a negative answer today to the General Motors plan. This is the American Broadcasting Company. 10.30 at KECA Los Angeles.